Good morning, and welcome again to Grace. As Ryan mentioned, my name is Brent Corbin, and I work with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at the University of Tulsa. And uh, my better counterpart in this ministry is Shane Hatfield. Shane and Sherry have been good friends of my wife, Sarah, and I's for, uh, man, six or seven years now, ever since we moved to Tulsa, and they left us, sadly, and came here to be with y'all. Good for you, sad for us. I grew up in Duncan, Oklahoma. Uh, like Ryan said, I went to OU because I couldn't get into OSU, and, um, yeah. and my wife Sarah is somewhere in here unless she got co-opted into nursery. I don't see her, so maybe she actually did. Maybe she's probably getting coffee or something. So uh, we're going to be in, in Psalm 27 this morning if you want to turn there in a Bible or a phone or whatever, whatever other means you have of getting there. I saw it wasn't printed in the bulletin, so I wanted to mention that. Uh, so Psalm 27. And as we turn there, I need to tell you that my iPad is running out of power at an alarming rate this morning. So we're hoping that, uh, that it lasts. Otherwise, it's going to be short and sweet. So uh, let, me, let me start us off by asking this. Are you a confident person? Are you a confident person? Or maybe it would be better to ask your friends around you, am I a confident person? Do you think I'm a confident person? That's kind of a weird question, isn't it? Because the reality is, is that in, in some ways we might say, yes, you know, maybe you're confident in your baking skills, but not at hitting fastballs. Maybe you're confident uh, in your ability to fix things around the house, but maybe not that confident in your skills as a husband or a wife. I know that one personally. Uh, maybe you're confident in your work, but you're not all that good at uh, putting together an outfit. Or maybe you're not all that good at, at knowing what to do uh, when social situations happen. Confidence is a, it's an interesting thing because it's so situational throughout our life, across circumstances and time and relationships and all these different areas. In this psalm that we're going to read this morning, King David is going to talk to us about a confidence that comes from outside of himself. A confidence uh, where he finds rest that is based in something totally other than who he is and how he performs uh, in his life. It's not surprising then that we see that King David looks and finds a baseline, unshakable confidence for his life in the Lord. And Psalm 27 is a glorious picture of this confidence. King David wrote this, as you know, with all of the Psalms to be uh, part of the worship service to be sung by the ancient Israelites and the people of God even into today. Psalm 27 is a hymn, it's a song that restores our confidence not in ourselves but in the Lord. So if you will, I don't know what your normal practice is, I'd love for you to stand with me as I read from Psalm 27. And I'm reading from ESV, if you have something else, uh, I'm sure it'll be close enough. This is a Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. 
For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's Word. You may be seated and let me pray for us before we talk about it. Father, we do come to You having read Your Word and listened to it, Father. We ask that You would come and speak deeply to our hearts. Lord, speak to those areas of insecurity where we've been seeking confidence, some measure of, of okayness in ourselves. Would You speak into those areas and, and remove us from ourselves. Remove uh, the pressures to perform or to be adequate or to be good enough. Um, may we begin to feel that lift. And may we instead know and feel our confidence rising in who You are. And in what You say about us ultimately through Your Son Jesus and Father before that through this psalm. Would You guide us and lead us? Help us now, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So then, what does it mean to have confidence in God? What does it mean to have confidence in God? If we're going to try to turn away from posturing and having self-confidence in an unrighteous way to having confidence in God, what does that look like? How does that kind of confidence work? In this psalm, we see four different kind of movements to David's development of this idea. The first one is verses 1-3, through three, where he talks about the source of our confidence. Secondly is verses 4-6, through six, the place to find confidence. Thirdly then is the need for confidence. And fourth is the part we hate, it's the wait for confidence. So let's look at the first one, the source of our confidence, verses 1-3. through three. Let me just define a term real quick. I've been using it already, but let me, let me just define. What is confidence? What is it as I'm using it this morning? Here's what I would say. Confidence is a feeling or belief that we can rely on someone or something. It's a feeling or belief that we can rely on someone or something. It's a firm trust. And so, feeling, not in the sense of, of something that's fleeting, but a, a deep-seated trust. I can trust in that thing, or I can trust in that person. It's firmly grounded. Let me say it like this, we can wake up in the morning, indeed we do wake up every morning, and we pivot out of bed, and we put our feet off the side of the bed, and we firmly believe and trust that our feet are actually going to hit the floor. Why? Not because we've done some physics calculations instantaneously, it's because we trust that those people long ago knew what they were talking about in this thing called gravity. And we trust, ultimately, that God has created a world where there are gravitational forces that allow for our existence. 
right? We trust that when we go to Taco Bell and order a bean burrito, we're going to be disappointed because it doesn't have enough cheese, it doesn't have enough red sauce, it's all beans, and it's gotten smaller. We True. Over 30 years, I know this. I have a firm confidence that I will be disappointed in mediocrity at Taco Bell every time. So there's expert opinions, there's personal experience. All of this comes through life and through knowing what we should trust and what we should not trust. Another example, you Oklahoma State fans, you have a firm confidence that you will make it through this year's non-conference schedule without losing because you're playing a bunch of nobodies. And that's good. Praise Mike Gundy. He's a brilliant man. OU, on the other hand, doesn't have the confidence. We play two teams in the top ten in the first three weeks. It's stupid. It's insane. I don't know what they were thinking. You have confidence. We don't. Confidence is something we can believe in. Uh, the object of confidence is things in which we trust. So what does King David identify as the source of his confidence? I've mentioned it already. But think about this. Through all of his military endeavors, through all of his vast kingdom expansions and enterprises, David has settled on a singular source of his, of his confidence. And it is the Lord. It is the Lord. It's his singular source of confidence. Look down at verses 1-3. through three, And he draws this out with three kind of word pictures. He says, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. And the Lord is my stronghold. So the Lord is my light. Right there. The image given is that the Lord is the one who guides David. He would elsewhere write in Psalm 119 that the Lord is a, thy word, which is synonymous with God Himself, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now think about what sort of comfort that brings to all of us in different ways. For our children, a night light, whether through the closet or something on the wall, is something that, that gives a bit of ease to the fear and, and scariness of night and all of its darkness and unknown. Uh, for us, uh, as, as we walk through the attic, presuming you walk through the attic like I do, a, a light gives me some source of confidence that I'm not going to step through uh, and fall through the ceiling as I've done. Uh, for a college-aged girl walking across campus late at night, a light, or the lights kind of around campus, give confidence that it's not going to be as scary as it otherwise might be. Lights bring confidence. They, they kind of gird us up for the fears in the unknown of life. So David says, the Lord is my light. But he goes on. He says, the Lord is my salvation. That word is the same word as deliverer. So the Lord is my salvation. He's my deliverer. To know that something or someone is willing and able to save you and deliver you brings about immense confidence. Growing up in South Oklahoma, my father uh, worked very hard, and it still works the exact same job to this day out in the oil fields. Um, and I had a, a firm confidence in him. I didn't have a confidence in the oil prices, but I had a firm confidence that he was going to work hard to provide for us, to save us from what otherwise might come. He was a deliverer in that sense. But he didn't just provide for us positively. He also delivered us from negative things that might happen. So if my brothers and I would be playing outside in the evening and, and if he was home, he would help us get down out of the tree after we got too high. Right? The, the ascent is really fun. The, looking down in the descent is terrifying. Or if we got too far out into the pond and we're you know, freaking out, he would come out there and get us. So he provided for us positively. He was a deliverer. But he also delivered us 
from negative things that would happen. David is saying that about the Lord. He's my salvation. He's my deliverer. No doubt David had numerous examples over his life to see this borne out. Maybe the the penultimate example would have been in his conquest over Goliath. Think about this. Well-known Bible story. Even the kids in here, ears are perking up. David goes out against Israel's formidable enemy, the Philistines, with their giant warrior, Goliath. And he is a boy. He went to Karnakuk last week. He's, He's like this big. And he goes out there against this giant American ninja warrior, Philistine ninja warrior dude. He is amazing. And David slays him. And he admits, it's not through my power, it's because the Lord is with me. He's my salvation. He's my deliverer. He goes on. He says, the Lord is my stronghold. So He's my light. He guides my path. He's my salvation, my deliverer. He can save me. Lastly, the Lord is my stronghold. Think about this. In Oklahoma, uh, as my wife has learned for the last six years, as I've known since childhood, it's terrifying from like March through June in terms of the weather and its craziness. And you know, every afternoon there's a chance. And in some days, now that technology is better, we, we know there's like a heightened chance. Or if you watch the Weather Channel, it's just going to be terrible always. We know that tornadoes can happen. We know that these storms can come through and just almost instantaneously pop up and cause catastrophic damage. So what do we do? Or what do you do? We've never bought one. You go to your shelter. You go to the inner closet. You go into the basement. You go to that thing, that place, where you go to escape life's travails and its troubles and all of its fears. Where does David go? He says, I go to the Lord. It's like the spiritual answer. (laughs) We're hiding. It's like, I trust in God. Look, David is saying, he is my stronghold. My confidence rests in Him to protect me. The Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold. And look, if you're like me, I would have to honestly answer that question as I don't often go to the Lord as my stronghold. Maybe that's disappointing for you that Pastor Boy up here says that. I don't know. But that's the truth. Whenever life gets kind of scary and the unknown and the storm comes, I start leaning on my own resources, my own pragmatism and ability to make things happen. I often don't go to the Lord. And maybe that's true of you. Think about this. Here's a test to, to help us identify what it is uh, or where it is that we go for our stronghold. When I get nervous or fearful or anxious in life, at least I have blank. When I get nervous or fearful or anxious or worried in life, at least I have fill in the blank. Kids who love me. Kids who are obedient. At least I have a good diversified retirement account. I can you know, not be so scared. At least I have nice cars that have warranties. At least I have friends. At least I have a rainy day savings fund that Dave, told, Dave Ramsey told me to do. Six months of salary. At least I have a wife or a husband that I think loves me. At least I have wealthy parents that one day, I guess they're going to pass away and hopefully I get that inheritance. 
at least I have, what is it for you? What's the thing that, right, when things get a little shocky, uh, shaky, that's the place where you go. That's the rock for you. Look, those are good things if you look at that list, except maybe the part about your parents dying. And maybe there's some of you that's good. Yeah, really. Oftentimes, the places that we go and the things to which we flee for confidence and, and stability as a stronghold can look wonderful, socially acceptable, fine. These can be good and godly things. David is challenging us through this to say, yeah, those are fine. Is the Lord your ultimate sense of security? Is he your ultimate stronghold amidst all that life gives you? Is he your light, your salvation, your stronghold? Where do you find the confidence to move through life with that kind of unshakable confidence in the Lord? Well, David tells us secondly this morning. In verses 4-6, through six, he shows us exactly where it is that we can find this God. We might expect him to say, that you will find Him most clearly in that quiet place. In that really comfortable chair at your house with a lamp with your devotional books. You might think that David says you can find the Lord most clearly in nature. Up on the mountaintop or out in the lake fishing or on the golf course or whatever that place is for you. You might expect David to, to say, look, you go out and draw yourself out into all of God's creation and there you will experience Him and find Him most clearly. That is not what he says. Look down in verses 4-6 through six at the language that he employs there. Where do we find God? Here. Here in church. Look down right there. Verses 4-6, through six, this language. That you will dwell in the house of the Lord. Right? For them, that was... At the, at the tabernacle and then the temple, which was God's physical dwelling place. It's literally where they would go to find Him. So dwell in the house of the Lord. Inquire in His temple. Conceal me in His tent. You offer sacrifices in the tent. David is saying, I go to find God at this place, at the temple. That's where my confidence is restored and renewed. But if you've been around church long and you know kind of the progression of the Scriptures and how they unfold and reveal more and more about God, Maybe you know that when you get to the New Testament, this young rabbi, upstart dude named Jesus comes and starts saying things like this. Something greater than that temple that David's talking about in Psalm 27, something greater than that temple is here. Oh, it's me. Something greater than that temple is here. It's me. The Apostle John says of Jesus that the Son of God put on flesh and tented among us. The word there is the exact same. He tabernacled. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. Those words are all right there in Psalm 27. Jesus is saying that yes, King David found his solace and had his confidence restored and renewed at the temple as he gathered in worship and his heart and mind was transformed. Jesus is saying, if you want that to be true of you, you're going to find that in me. Now let's see this go on to develop as it progresses through Scripture. Because after Jesus is risen uh, from the dead, and after he ascends, he says, What? I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to unite you together. And so, though I am your head, you are going to be my body. And friends, that means that if you're a Christian, if you're part of God's church, his universal church, then our head, our living head, Jesus, he has ascended and is with the Father in heaven. 
but we are His body. And the Holy Spirit now lives in us much as in the exact same way that God lived in that Old Testament temple that King David is talking about. And so this may appear uh, very surprising to you, or maybe not, but the thing that you guys spend an extreme amount of energy to do every Sunday morning by setting up the chairs and the sound system and the communion table and getting kids' church ready to go, and we know it's not just Sunday morning, it's preparation throughout the week. For you to create a space where we can come and worship and gather together is not just part of our calendar. It's not just a social activity. It's not just a normal flow of life thing. This is a very meaningful endeavor. This is where God promises to meet us and to restore our confidence in Him and hopefully to lessen our confidence in ourselves. The worship of God in church and the gathering of His people is the normative means by which Christians are renewed and strengthened in the Lord. Think of how Jesus says this as He prays. He's about to leave His people. He's about to be crucified and then resurrected and then ascended. Listen to how He prays for us. Father, make them one as we are one. Make them one. Unite them together by the power of Your Spirit just as You and I are one. That's close, y'all. That means knowing those scary and and maybe the things we don't want others to know, those details of our lives. That means praying for one another like Aaron did, some of the, the hard things of life, and celebrating the joys. God is calling us to an intimacy of, of oneness. He's saying there, in that way, as you are dwelling together and living life together, you have your confidence restored in me. The writer of the Hebrews, because of that, exhorts us in 10.25, Therefore, do not forsake meeting together. Look, I know it's, it's hard to go to church. The lake beckons. The golf course is much cooler in the morning. Uh, kids' sports teams are a big deal. Uh, there'll be football games. Of course, you all just drive across the street. Um, in the fall, like, there's just all kinds of things that would easily draw us away from this thing that we do. Friends, if you want to grow in knowledge, in grace, and in in your security in the Father, this is the primary means by which that happens. Right here. David's exhorting us then, with all of the New Testament authors, to come into His presence. So why do we do this? We've seen the source of our confidence, the place where we find that confidence. Why do we need this confidence? And I hope this is apparent. We need it for three different reasons. And right there in verses 7 through 12. The first one, verse 9, because we're sinful. We need God's confidence because the natural order and progression of our lives, apart from God's influence, is away from Him. We are sinful. Look at verse 9. David is begging God not to cast him off in anger. Don't hide from me, he says. Don't forsake me. Don't cast me off. God, I, he's saying, God, I know that I'm not the man that I should be. I know that I'm not the man I should be. You know you're not the man or woman you should be. He's saying, God, don't leave me. We need that sort of confidence that God is going to be there because we are sinful. Uh, a number of years ago, it was uh, maybe five years ago now, kind of an infamous moment uh, in our marriage. I'm not going to embarrass Sarah. I'm going to tell, tell on myself. 
Um, I had uh, promised, before Sarah and I got uh, engaged, and, and therefore before we got married, I had told her that I had kind of a, an illustrious past with gambling. Uh, started on the golf course in junior high. I would play golf with the doctors and lawyers in town. Funny, not funny. Um, and that flowed through to high school and into college, and it just kind of blossomed along the way. And I wasn't losing a lot of money because I didn't have a lot of money. But it was certainly something that had a stronghold on me. And she grew up in Louisiana where uh, casinos had been uh, legal down there for a long time and was able to see just the long-term destructive effects of this um, over a period of time. For me, it was all just glamour. And she said, look, that, uh, that kind of freaks me out. To be honest with you, that scares me. And in fact, if you want to keep doing that, I'm not sure we're going to be a thing. And she was more important to me, thank God, than that, that next little gambling fix. And so I said, look, I'm not going to do it. I'll give it up. It, you're worth that. About three, four years into marriage, um, I actually stepped into a casino on my way down to RUF staff training. Awful, I get it. Um, and uh, immediately I was convicted, uh, after, well, after losing money. Um, and then I came back home after that week, and I just sat down and I said, I mean, I just felt awful all week. But Sarah, I did this, and I'm sorry, and I want to ask your forgiveness. Here's what I expected. I expected for her to recount the promise that I had made and to say, look, you broke that. You promised me you wouldn't do that. And here's what happened instead. She looked at me and said, I love you, I forgive you, and I don't want that to be true of you again. I don't want to ever hear you have to say that again. I expected judgment, I expected condemnation, and I received grace. Friends, we need the restoring confidence that comes from the Lord. Because we're sinful, we break promises to Him and others. The natural bent of our life is away from Him. We need Him to welcome us back, and that is exactly what happens in Christ. So we need Him because we're sinful. Secondly, we need Him in His presence because others leave us. Other people leave us. Look back at verse 10. David is confident of the Lord's presence even though, get this, even though his father and mother have abandoned him. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances of this. But someone very close to him, a father and mother, they've left him, and he's saying, Lord, please, you don't do that also. Stay close with me. Don't leave me or forsake me. So I'll just ask you, does your confidence rest in the Lord who, who sticks closer than a brother? or a mother, or a father, or a spouse, or a friend? Do you know the Lord's closeness and confidence in that way? And then in verses 11 and 12, thirdly, we see the Lord's presence, and we need it, and the confidence it brings, because we have real enemies. We have real enemies. Verse 11 and 12, David actually did have lots of physical enemies, because he's a king, and kings have kingdoms, and the thing about kingdoms is everyone else wants to take you over. Right? So he had real physical enemies. Maybe someone is actually out to wreck your life right now. Maybe you're a doctor and you have a malpractice suit. Maybe you're a lawyer and you live in that world. Maybe you're something and uh, you're a mom and you've got another mom who's mad at you because of something their kid, your kid did to theirs. Life brings us any sort of things where we may have people mad at us at any given moment. My wife has a friend who lives in Austin, Texas, and she was happily dating this guy for 
man, I, a couple years, I don't know, a long time. And uh, they had talked about getting married, and she's rightly excited about this. She's our age, mid-30s, and so you get the, the prospect and how enjoyable this was for her, and she was excited. And along the way, she had loaned him some money uh, to buy a house, and they wrote up an agreement about how that was going to be paid back. But, I mean, you know, her eye is toward the future, so she's thinking this house is going to be my house, no big deal. In the last six months or so, it comes out that he had... I don't know, five or six or seven other women that he was doing this with. He was taking their money. He was dating multiple people around the country. Thorough deception and manipulation. He went from being like almost fiancé status to being, a, in a real sense, an enemy. Someone who was against her and her livelihood and her well-being. Maybe you have real enemies, but if you don't, be certain of this. You do have a real spiritual enemy. If not a physical enemy, you absolutely have a spiritual enemy. First, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8 that be sober-minded. He's warning us. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, or maybe you do, but he's saying primarily but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly unseen places. Friends, whether you have physical enemies or not, you have a spiritual enemy, the devil, Satan, the evil one, the accuser, whatever he has called through Scripture, he wants to destroy you. He wants to take your confidence from you, and he wants to shame you and make you feel so little that you are paralyzed by your inabilities. He wants to make you feel so less than or so incapable of ever having friends or being able to move about in the world in a sense of well-being. He wants to make you feel awful about your life, your job, your circumstances, whatever it is. He hates you. And David is saying, yeah, that's real. I have physical enemies and there's a real spiritual enemy out there. God, restore my confidence. I need you. I need you. So we need that confidence that only comes from the Lord because you and I know, you and I know, that in and of ourselves, we may be able to get through some little things from time to time, but that long-standing, rock-solid ability to persevere and move around in life, we need something greater than ourselves. We need the one who himself is rock-solid, who himself is unshakable and unchanging, and we have that in the Lord. And David is utterly confident of that. And so he says then, what do we do? Verse 13, this is the part that we hate. Hate as Americans. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So verse 13 is this triumphant, yes, God, you are it. I shall, I shall wait for you and, and you're my source of confidence and all of this stuff. And the warning comes in verse 14 as a challenge to us, wait for Him. Be strong. You're going to have to gird yourself up and be persistent and persevere through those lulls in life. But he's saying we can be confident because it is the Lord for whom we are waiting. He will come. 
I'm sure you're like me. I want life fast. I don't like slow internet. Can you imagine what it's like for me to wait on grander things? I don't like slow traffic. I don't like all the normal things pastors say about, you know, like my sins. I don't like any of that stuff that isn't just instantaneous. I want it fast. I want it efficiently. I want it to work like it should. And if it doesn't, I don't want it or you in my life, honestly. I just took a personality profile test. And it said, uh, you don't like people or things that are inefficient. (laughs) My wife read it yesterday, and she's laughing through this thing. She's like, well, that's you. It is. And that's telling of my heart, maybe yours. I want things to work on schedule. Waiting, by definition, does not work on my schedule. It doesn't. It beckons me and requires that I put my faith, I trust God. I, put, I trust someone outside of me. And that's hard. We're remodeling our house right now. Why we're doing that before school starts with free kids, I don't know. Shoot me. But we bought a new house. We're remodeling it. Uh, one of the things we wanted to do was to put in a brick floor in our house. And I don't mean like brick pavers. I mean, we wanted to go get used brick and put it down on the floor. Now, there's a problem with that when you're putting it into an existing house. Is that bricks, as you know, are three and a half inches thick. Uh, Floors are not, and there's no other kind of flooring which is that tall. So, we had to cut our bricks in half. I don't know if you've ever tried to cut a brick in half. I hadn't. But you get a giant tile saw, and you feed these bricks through. And I kid you not, it takes two and a half minutes a brick. We had 600 bricks, and we still have an area that doesn't have bricks. We ran out of space, or ran out of bricks. 600 bricks times two and a half minutes, that is 1,500 minutes. I don't know how to divide 1,500 by 60. That's a lot of hours cutting brick. You can't speed it up. I tried. You feed this thing through, this diamond-bitted blade, You feed it through, and it takes two and a half minutes. If you try to go too fast, it binds the saw up, and it trips the breaker, and it takes longer. So friends, from June 4th through June 13th of 2016, I cut bricks. Sarah cut them on June 9th. Bless her soul. She gave me a day of rest. It was terrible. I had to wait for seven days of brick cutting. How are you at waiting on the Lord? Because He may not just give you a seven day, hey, go hang out for seven days and then I'll come and deliver you. This may be years. It may be a lifetime. You may not be fully vindicated until glory. Until you see Him face to face and in that moment, I promise you, you will say, oh, it was worth it. You're better than the brick floor. This is worth it. Your promises are absolutely true. I doubted you along the way, but you told me to wait for you. He will absolutely vindicate Himself. Friend, you can take His promises to be with you to the bank. Think about this corporately, and I'll end with this. What would it look like if Grace Stillwater as a community were the kind of people who actually lived and had their confidence restored in the Lord? What would it look like if as a people, as a community, as a church, 
we actually weren't consumed by a thoroughgoing anxiety in just about life. Side note, I totally understand there are clinical anxiety. I totally get all that. I'm not demeaning you. Okay? I, really, I really do mean that. But all of us operate with a base level of just anxiousness about the way we live. We actually don't trust that God is as good as He is. We don't trust that He's, that he's going to carry us through the past and on into the future. We don't believe that. What would it look like if we did? I think it would be astounding to the world around us. They would notice. Man, you seem like a people that just don't seem to be consumed by the price of oil or the price of wheat or the price of cattle or the the broader economy. You don't seem to be totally losing your mind when your kids are not acting just like they should, which is always. You don't seem to be just belittled by all of life's small circumstances. That's who God calls us to be. He calls us to trust in Him, to have our confidence restored and renewed, and to wait on Him. And in that time of waiting, He's changing us. By His Spirit, as we do life together, as we worship, and as we grow together, He's changing us, and He's making us more and more into a people like that. So where in your life are you not letting Him do that? Where in your life are you saying, no, God, I'm trying to trust in myself. Where are you self-confident in an unrighteous way? I invite you this morning to Jesus, to the one who dwells and who we're about to participate in him as our living head, who dwells with us and restores sanity to to us as his body. Let your confidence be renewed and strengthened in him this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we do ask that by your spirit you would strengthen us for this week, for this month, for this year, and beyond. Through David, you've called us to wait on you, to be strong, and to wait. So God, would you give us strength? Would you give us perseverance? Would you give us the ability to wait for you amidst all of life's pressing concerns? Help us. We pray we need it. We pray in just a moment that you'd use this supper to strengthen us. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.